Before we start this week's episode, a quick note about the devastation in Turkey and Syria. By now, I'm sure everyone has heard about the historic and catastrophic earthquakes that have rocked Syria and Turkey. And if you listen to this podcast, you know that my family and I have actually been living in Istanbul, Turkey for the past several years. And while I'm grateful to say that I and my family are well and safe, it's also true that thousands of people have been killed and tens of thousands of people are displaced. Turkey is already really struggling with a deep economic crisis. And also this time of year is extremely cold for this part of the world in ways that they're not necessarily set up to handle. From day one of the Travelers Podcast, we've been sponsored by Zakat Foundation. And Zakat Foundation has a huge presence and office in Turkey on the ground. The president of the organization is actually from Turkey. And if you're looking for ways to donate and contribute, we'll say more about this later, but go right now to zakat, Z-A-K-A-T dot org. Give as much as you can and know that you're donating to an organization that is very active and very present and very trustworthy. Along with thoughts and prayers and concern and care, any resources that you donate go a long way. Let's get to this episode of the Travelers Podcast. Peace and love, everybody. This is Brother Ali. You're listening to the Traveler's Podcast. Uh, the reason that I'm talking quietly and maybe sound a little different than usual is because talking into my phone in a hotel room in Mecca, surrounded by my sleeping wife and daughters, uh, this is the 30th anniversary of me becoming Muslim back when I was a teenager. Uh, Valentine's Day, 1993. After reading the autobiography of Malcolm X and listening to hip hop and then watching the movie, and I found the local mosque and did a little bit of research and ended up becoming Muslim on that day officially and outwardly part of the community. And I wanted to go to Mecca so bad. It's such a dream. Uh, I watched this movie as as a lot of us did as converts. And even the Muslim world loves this movie called The Message. It's hard to find now. It's kind of been buried, I think. But a lot of times you can find it on YouTube. It's called The Message, starring Anthony Quinn, who plays the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, named Hamza. Um, May Allah be well pleased with Hamza. It's a really accurate movie. And it's it's not a bad way to learn about early Islamic history. And that's how I learned about it when I first converted. There's just so much about Mecca and Medina in that movie. And also Malcolm visited and, you know, all the early history here. So I wanted to go so bad. And then finally in 2010, uh, the year that our friend Idea passed away and my father died and just had a very difficult year. And I was able to make Hajj that year, which is the major pilgrimage. That's when millions of Muslims from all over the world are here all doing the same rituals in the same 10-day period. And that's a life-changing event, for sure, for everybody that does it. And I was able to, my family and I moved to Turkey about two years ago. And so I was flying home from America one time, and I realized that 
Delta was offering flights that instead of connecting in Amsterdam, connected in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, which is the air, that's the airport you go to when you want to go to Mecca. So I took that flight and I was able to do a minor pilgrimage that we call Umrah, where you do most of the sacred ceremonial rites, uh, but it's not all of them. And you can do it in one day and you can do it whenever you want to. So you get in the same two like white cloths and um, you come and there are thousands of people from all over the world every day doing that minor pilgrimage. And so the last time I was on tour, I stopped through and I did it and I realized just how, how plausible it is to do. And so I started making plans because I knew my 30th anniversary was coming up. So that's what we did. So my daughters and my, and my wife and I are here We'll be in Mecca for another day, and then we go to Medina, which is the city of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that he built, and it's where he built his mosque and where his home was, and he died in his home, which is actually the home of his wife, our mother Aisha. Allah be well pleased with her. He died in her lap in her home, which is like a really tiny space, like the size of a hotel room. That's how they lived, even when they were the political leaders of this growing nation. And uh, he slept on the ground and he wouldn't go to sleep if there was a single coin of money in his home. He gave it all away every day. And when he got sick, he died in her lap and she buried him right where they buried him, right where he died, peace be upon him, in her home. And she continued to live there. They just built like a, a wall or like a curtain for her private quarters. And then people would come and visit his grave. And they would ask her questions because she was one of the great scholars of the religion of Islam. And so most of the early scholarly tradition, a lot of it actually goes through her. And she authenticated and, and verified things. And, and then the first two caliphs, the, uh, Abu Bakr and Omar, Allah be well pleased with them. They're also buried there. And so we'll go and visit all of the all of those places and really very beautiful experience. I'm very grateful to be able to do it. Um, Hassan Minhaj is on the podcast this week. And I've known Hassan for a long time. I've loved him for a long time. We've been uh, really close friends and brothers. Hassan, I met him as part of a group of young, energetic, creative Muslim comedians. Uh, their OG is actually my OG as well. Um, our dear brother, Preacher Moss, who is just a really beautiful, incredible man. Um, and hopefully we get to have Preach on the podcast. Preach, if you're listening to this, man, I'm praying for you in Mecca and Medina and love you and want to talk and connect soon, inshallah. Um, but, you know, these young guys that were coming up wanting to get into comedy and being Muslims and, you know, having their code of ethics and their identity and all of this stuff. And, and so they had to be really creative and they worked together. And I, I was really inspired by them. And in a lot of ways, I, I, you know, in our community was one of the few people that was moving around and actually active and doing something that was seen as valid in the world of art, culture, entertainment. You know, I was playing at Coachella and doing all these festivals and being on TV and things like that. And in our community, that, w that wasn't something that was a lot of us were doing. And so these comedians like Mo Amer, who went on to tour the world with Dave Chappelle, 
He has two Netflix specials and a really dope series about his life on Netflix called Mo. I'm actually rapping at the end of it. Uh, and then Guz Khan and Rami Youssef. Rami also has a special on HBO and a Hulu special uh, or a series about his life that's in its third season. Uh, Amr Rahman, who did an incredible reverse racism sketch. If you haven't seen his piece on reverse racism, look up Amr Rahman reverse racism on YouTube. Dave Chappelle calls it the Rosetta Stone. Really amazing. Um, man, who else? Azhar Usman, who has written for all of these incredible people and also has a role in um, the Miss Marvel series. When you see the guy on Miss Marvel doing the food truck, that's our brother Azhar Usman, who's written for all these incredible people. And I'm sure I'm leaving people out, please forgive me, but all these really incredible Muslim comedians that came up together and had to really create their own platforms to do what they wanted to do. And Hassan is somebody that makes me so happy because he's always been true to who he is. He's brilliant. And he has that microscope that an artist needs to have to be able to look at ourselves and really be alone with our truest inclinations to create art. But then, you know, some of us also have a telescope to be able to see the broader world. And they figure out a way in. They figure out their lane. They, they, and they hit a tipping point and they be, actually become part of culture. Uh, a lot of us that have the microscope we're able to gather a group of supporters around us, which is really beautiful. That's how I've been most of my career. I'm very, very grateful for that because it's very liberating and I love it. But I'm not necessarily part of uh, mainstream culture. Um, you know, I think my name showed up on a crossword puzzle one time <laughs> in the New York Times. Underground rapper, Brother Ali. But, you know, Hassan saw a way to do that. and. Whenever somebody does that, cross over into the mainstream, become part of culture, become you know part of the zeitgeist, as it were, to really have his voice and, uh, and his worldview be at the table. And he's done it so courageously and brilliantly. And in, in my view and estimation, it's very sincere. And there's something really bright and loving, even about his critiques. It's a beautiful thing to see. And he had to really create his own style of comedy. You know, he does multimedia, he brings in social media. He jokingly calls himself a PowerPoint comedian. But he created his own way of doing it. And his show that's on Netflix called Patriot Act, he created that himself. Very similarly to how an underground artist or musician makes our own music and creates our own record label to do what we want to do. And then his two comedy specials, Homecoming King and King's Jester, really amazing. Especially the first one deals a lot with his identity and just growing up in America uh, as a second generation or first generation, I guess, uh, child of Indian immigrants. And then the newest one, uh, the King's Jester, really deals with that balance between telling the truth, pursuing our art and our vision, and then also having to balance and navigate our ego and how our ego is playing a role in everything. And it means that the people that we live with oftentimes suffer for us pursuing our dreams. So really beautiful thing. And over the years, Hassan has really grown, uh, but because of our bond and his understanding of brotherhood and culture, uh, he's always 
treated me the same way. You know, he's always treated me like an elder brother. And um, so I'm very grateful to be able to just share. This is just one of the conversations with a really dope, sincere, creative person who stayed true to himself and actually made it. Uh, just very, very grateful to be talking to Hassan Minhaj. We're brought to you, as always, by the Zakat Foundation. And this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash travelers will connect you with a, a national network of trained therapists. And uh, just very grateful for this whole thing. Enjoy this episode of the Travelers Podcast. Man, the Wi-Fi in Istanbul is so unpredictable. Like everything here is unpredictable. They have everything that everybody else has got, but it's all profoundly unpredictable in ways that are like, hard to adjust to and after a while they get hilarious really is there one is there one particular example where you're like man this is this is tough is it the wi-fi the wi-fi is one of the main ones yeah because i see you know I, i do the podcast and then my wife is a therapist and she sees her clients online her clients are still in the u.s yeah so that's like an ongoing one but i mean it's literally everything like literally for like for Eid, they'll just lock my office building for a week and like no one will be here no one will tell you that you know what i mean and it's just like no it's it's they call it bite them they're just like no it's bite them like you don't work during bite them like man but i might need my computer i might need i might want to actually go into my office for something right no 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 i got you crazy what's working for you obviously like lifestyle cost of living i'm sure culturally it's dope yeah, it's perfect for our family, you know, if, in so many ways. Like one, Minneapolis was just like, I needed some space between me and Minneapolis for a little bit. Yeah. And then religiously, it's really good. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's people, you can be religious here. And also my daughters can skateboard and do photography. And, you know, it's it's all just really normal. Cost of living is dope. It's nice to just physically not be in America. And also mentally and spiritually just... Right. To be aware of it, but to not have to be, there's something about being outside for a little bit. Yeah. Anytime I tour internationally, the world just feels like a bigger place. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. What's New York like, man? Like the, I was only there once. My wife is from the Bronx. And so we went back and spent a week. And I guess I played a show in Brooklyn, but yeah. But man, New York felt really, like it felt really different. It felt really like volatile and desolate and like a little bit wild wild west like yeah it's kind of like that it's kind of been like that coming out of covid you know but it's still one of my favorite cities in the world to do comedy in you know it's just one of those things where i'd say new york london chicago there's certain cities where um culturally the art form of kind of stand-up comedy is respected as a prestigious art form it's not just mm. you know what i mean you go to certain comedy clubs in any town america you're basically a lubricant for the bar yeah when people come to the comedy cellar or they go see you at a show you know in london at hackney empire the o2 they're like okay i'm i'm seeing the artist that's the main entree so that 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 part of it you know, is is good for my spirit. And we've talked about this before privately. Um, 
I've even hit you when I'm going on those trips to LA. LA is a very, very disillusioning place for me. Yeah. You know, um, scenically it's so beautiful, but it's like a hologram. There's nothing underneath that. Whereas New York is going through coming out of COVID is going through some rough patches scenically, but I think the heart and the spirit is still there. Mm -hmm. When I go see artists, when I go see bands, I can still feel that energy. You know, people are trying to put on their best work there. You know what I mean? What's the vibe like at the Comedy Cellar? Like that's that's always been my favorite place to to go and experience comedy. Yeah, you know, it's home. Like now it's been home. I've I've lived now in in New York now for almost eight nine years. So um, that's like my home club. And what's cool about it is there's kind of the it's the perfect combination between the up and coming class, the new group of comics and artists that are coming up. And then you have the the older vets, the guys that have been there for 20, 25, 30 years. And then of course, there's a third group, which is what I just call like the legends, you know, a Bill Burr, a Chris Rock, these guys will come in and, you know, they'll, they'll put on their work, you know? And I, I love that mix. I love that mix. There's very few places that are like that. And it's just about it's just about the set that you have that night. Like uh, the comedy seller isn't, uh, is, it's not plugged into the Hollywood movie studios or the agencies. It's just like, did you rip that night or not? Oh, did you see Chappelle dropped in? Did you see his 10 minutes on this? And that kind of, um, it's like comedy nourishment. That's, that's, those nutrients is what I need, not clout, fame, hype that stuff still exists that kind of ego stuff still exists but it it is at a lower volume than it is in LA yeah it's crazy man because for me LA in terms of the people in LA like the regular people that just work jobs and like live in the valley or live in, you know like those people support me stronger and in higher numbers than New York does wow but in terms of like energetically for a place for me to be like, man, I, I never know how many people are going to come to a show in New York. The last one I did in New York was, like, really embarrassingly light, man. Like, like nobody came. It was at his new club in Brooklyn. I think that had something to do with it. But, man, New York, like, doesn't like me as much as I like it. But uh, L.A., not, not Hollywood, not the, you know, not the scene in L.A., but, like, the people that live in L.A., Love me. Like when I walk around LA, people are like, yo, brother Ali Holmes. Like, it's, you know what I mean? What are the cities like that you feel the most love from? Where you personally, but also creatively, where you're like, man, this city is really good for me. Uh, it gives me a lot of nutrients. I feel creative here. I want to put up my best work here. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably Chicago. Mm. Is high on the list. Mm. The first time that I went on tour, you know, we did like 50 shows in 60 days type of thing. Yeah. And it, so it took me a minute. And it was me and Brendan, the, the producer of this podcast, was my first DJ. And so we were like trying to find it, trying to find it. And then for some reason, we got to Omaha, Nebraska. And there was just something that happened where like uh, I figured out how to be Brother Ali on stage that day. Wow. So I've always had a, a, I've always loved playing there. Yeah. But yeah, man, it's, I mean, the Southwest is always really good for us. Your Sway performances are pretty great. There's something about that room. 
Yeah, well, that's with with Sway. It's it's a different thing. So for me, like the actual artists receive me in a different way than listeners do. So the cohort of artists that I thought I was going to be in or that I was aiming for was like Black Thought, Yasin Bey, Pharaoh Monch. And now they're all my friends. And so if we're rapping, they're all like, yo, you know, like they treat me that way. But the, the audience doesn't necessarily see it that way. Right. You know what I mean? So my audience is, is usually other people that are attracted to, to like the songwriting or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, so that the times that I that I do Sway, if I'm with Sway or... I think the the one that I did that got the most response, like uh, Dead Prez was there that day. Uh-huh. So like if they're in the room, I'm like, okay, never mind what anybody else thinks. Like I have to remind Stick and M1 that I that I am what I say I am. You know what I mean? That's amazing. Have have there been magical nights like that before where you're like, man, I don't care what anyone says. So and so said that was great. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of those. You know, when Dave Chappelle was doing that summer of 2020 yeah. in Yellow Springs, I went to that. And man, being validated by that particular group of people, like Dave and Yasin and uh, David Banner came through. And I really love Michelle Wolf. Like I loved her before. I loved her as a as a fan before I knew her. Uh-huh. And then I, I really, you know, bonded with her there as well. Obviously Mo. Yeah. Um, but being in that space was really dope too. So the King's Jester was stand up and it was like firmly stand up. And I could see you doing all of that material in the cellar or in whatever, Zanies or whatever, any place I could just see you doing that set. But the way that you were presenting it was like a full on concert, almost like a musical, like a one man show type of thing. And I'm seeing more and more of that, that people are bringing in different elements. You know, Neil Brennan just did a piece where he was moving the little pieces around. And like, I didn't know there was going to be that moment at the end where he sat in the chair and and had the like, here's the interior of my soul moment. Uh-huh. Like, I was like, man, you didn't quite set that up enough, but I see what he was doing. Right. And so it just feels like that's something that's happening more and more in comedy specials. Mm. And I wonder... Um, how do you develop that part? Because like, it seems like comedians might be slow to embrace that part. And some of them are funny about it. Some of them are purists and some of them are jealous maybe. And mm. so how do you actually do that part of the work? And do you have other comedians that, that can build with you on that? Or is it just you going straight to the audience and letting them decide? You know, what's so funny, man. We've talked about this privately a bunch, but I've taken a ton of inspiration, believe it or not, from other genres and art forms. And I'm sure you felt like this too, where you felt like an outsider within hip hop. Mm -hmm. And I think I also felt like an outsider within stand-up comedy. I'm this skinny Muslim, like Indian kid with poofy hair, like I'm supposed to be (laughs) like a a news anchor. It's, It's a lot. It's this weird kind of Indian Muslim Ryan Seacrest, weatherman. I don't know what, I don't know how to classify this dude. He doesn't look like a traditional quote unquote stand-up comic. And a lot of my interests and my inspirations and just the way I communicate is a little bit um, left of center or not in the straight and narrow setup punchline comics, one-liner comics, maybe dark blue comedy, 
um, big act out, just performance kind of like comedy. It's this combination between storytelling and punchlines. But then I also, I'm a very visual person. Like there's times where I'll, I'll be having a conversation with a friend and I'll go, did you see this thing? And I feel like I'll show them something on my phone, almost like with a childlike exuberance or excitement. Oh, you haven't seen that? Like, oh, check this out. Oh, dude. And then I'll comment while it's happening. And what I wanted to do is I've always felt like, ah, how do I capture the energy that I have when I'm the at my funniest with my friends? Now I got to translate that to it to an audience. Um, and funny enough, it was music. It was following what musicians actually do, the way they collaborate with a bunch of people, the way they use their voice, they use their whole body as an instrument. You know, I've seen you even in you've done freestyles where you you'll rap as Brother Ali, then you'll do voices. Right. We call it act outs, right? Eminem would do that too, where he was Eminem, Slim Shady, Marshall. He's all these, he's playing all these characters. Mm -hmm. And then I would see when I would go see music, there'd be lighting cues, there'd be all these other things to tap into the pathos and the emotion of it. And so for me, I was like, why aren't comics, why aren't we taking inspiration? We all want to be musicians. Why don't we take more inspiration from them? And funny enough, what you guys revolutionized, kind of decentralized, independent artistry, going direct to your fan base, performing at festivals. Y'all have been doing that for 20 years. We just started doing that, where we have like comedy festivals and we mm-hmm. we put out specials directly to our audience. Radiohead, you guys have been you guys have been doing that for two plus decades, building up your mailing list, having the sh- the show feel like a unique experience. Whereas for years, I felt like the art form of comedy was kind of stagnated. You know, you'd go see see someone on tour. They'd be working it out on stage. They kind of have an abusive relationship with their audience. Ah, oh, you guys don't get it. Yeah. You know, th- there wasn't this feeling of, oh, man, I'm in Minneapolis tonight. I haven't seen you guys in three years. Let me show you the new album. There wasn't that sense of pride. Right. And I think we treated the art form more like a mixtape, not a studio album. So I took a ton of inspiration from actual music. The use of, there were your main tracks, interludes, storytelling, all that stuff. mentioned at the top of the podcast that Syria and Turkey have been devastated by this series of historically catastrophic earthquakes. And if you listen to the podcast, you know that my family and I have been living in Istanbul for the past couple of years. My inboxes and my texts and my apps that I use to communicate with people and my DMs and my email, everything has just been full of messages of people reaching out, making sure we're okay, asking if we need anything. And alhamdulillah, I mean, physically and directly, the earthquakes didn't touch Istanbul. Some people said they felt tremors and things. We personally didn't feel them. But just living in this country, 
I mean, first of all, there's already a big economic crisis that this country has been undergoing for the past several years. On top of that, the weather is extremely cold for this region of the world, and they're just not set up for it. So really low temperatures. That honestly, coming from Minnesota, like temperature-wise, like, man, why does this feel so harsh? Like I said, this part of the world just isn't set up for it. So a lot of rain, uh, the buildings aren't set up for this type of cold. They're just not insulated like that. So even nice places have water coming in and they're really drafty. People have lost power. There's electrical storms. There's incredible winds. This country has been already dealing with a lot, not to mention what Syria is going through. And so the earthquakes, it rivals September 11th. and the feeling of being in a country that has gone through something like this in some ways reminds me of September 11th. It's a historical level event. And I remember when the earthquakes happened in Haiti and there were hurricanes and things like that, and being in America and just being like, man, I see the footage and I want to help. And what do we do? And I just remember feeling like, man, I really hope that we can trust these organizations. I know our intentions are good, but in this particular case, It means a lot to us that we've been connected with Zakat Foundation from the beginning of this podcast because Zakat Foundation works on the ground. They don't just drop money places. They don't just drop ship food. They have a really serious headquarters in Turkey, and the president of the organization is from Turkey. So if you go to zakat.org, Z-A-K-A-T.org, this is an organization that's deeply connected. This is an organization that you can trust. This is an organization that's really adept at getting goods and services and resources exactly where they're needed and to the people who need them the most quickly. If you feel moved to help, a little bit goes a long way. You know, the the $20 that we can give, the $100, the $200, the $5, it goes a long way, especially if a lot of people do it. So I'm personally asking, out of all the talking I've been doing for the last coming up on a year about Zakat Foundation. I'm personally asking, go to zakat.org right now and give something to the people in Turkey and Syria that are going through this. And while you're there, stick around with Zakat Foundation because it's a reputable organization that does great work all over the world. When you were talking to Mark Marin. I found myself just like, man, please, Allah, never make me be that person. That when somebody comes with so much energy, who's obviously, like when you say childlike exuberance, it's funny because my wife is always like, man, Hassan always reminds me of like the kids at the masjid. You know what I mean? No matter how big he gets, no matter how old he gets, no matter how like worldly he gets, no matter how beautiful his takes and critiques and like, no matter how far he goes, I always just see this kid at the masjid and I'm like, that's exactly right. You know, so many of the people that put the amount of attention to detail into what they do and it's so well thought out and it's so planned. And like, I can tell from watching it and knowing how shows are put together, like, man, he's probably hitting a specific part of the stage on a certain line and there's a certain thing and that, you know, it's like the way that it's coming together. Most of the time people, when they put that level of of attention into what they're doing, they lose some of the personality of it. They lose some of the authenticity of it. You start to get a sense that like, oh, this is the show. It's it's almost like a suspension of disbelief, but but it's not because I'm like, that's the actual 
soul. Like that's the soul of this man. Like this is really who he is. You know what I mean? And so Kieran, you talk to Marin. Here's somebody who's bringing something so new to the art form, who's obviously enjoying it so much, who's giving it ex extreme amounts of honor by putting that much work into it and by putting that much of yourself out into the world. And the people love it. So like, what are you upset about, man? I do know that some of the greats, like some of the true greats have really embraced you. I know you have a relationship with Chris Rock. Like who are the people that, that encourage you? I would say Chris and Dave, you know, but Chris has been one of those guys where it's been so cool. He'll just come to a show and he'll be just, he'll be looking on in the back. Like, it's almost like one of the, like, it's like, it's like one of those movies where he's just kind of standing there in the back, like in Rudy, you know, just like watching me and kind of like, and he'll come backstage and he'll give notes and he'll give ideas. But what's been so cool is some of the people that have, have really embraced me when I've tried to look to them, even for answers, they've never given me the shortcut stuff. Mm -hmm. It's always been, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you've had mentors in your life like this. They're talking about things more philosophically. They're not, they're not say this joke. <laughs> and I've always had this thing where like yeah. one day I'll meet Yoda and Yoda will tell me exactly what to do. But it's more of like, they'll be like, just look at it, maybe turn it this way. Have you thought about the world this way? And then kind of going from there. So I would say Chris Rock and Jon Stewart have been the two that have been, that have been like that. And the gems that they've given me, I'll, I'll give you an example. Most recently, I was talking to John. And I was telling him, he did an, inter an interview where someone, a media figure was kind of going at him and saying that he was washed up, like he's a little bit over the hill. And John goes, I'm almost 60. So yes, I am, I am over, I'm over the hill. And there was part of me, I was telling John, I was like, why did you say that? Like, why were you trying to be so gracious in that moment? Like, this person's calling you irrelevant. You should have been like, if I'm irrelevant, what are you? Like, you're the journalist that's covering me. So if, if you think I'm low value, what do you think the blog that's covering me is? <laughs> right, right. He's like, I don't have to do that. This person's already stuck. Like the, the shit poster who has to dunk on me and like write up an article about where I am in the pantheon of relevance. He's like, they're, they're playing a game, a losing game. It's a very low value proposition. All I have to do is worry about the work that I'm doing. And I just thought that there was two things that I took away from that conversation. Number one, um, and you know, even though John is Jewish, there was something about it that was so Islamic in nature where to, be gr to have graciousness through, through everything, even when someone's low key kind of trying to dunk on you, he was being gracious through all of it, laughing it off. I guess, I guess you're right. I guess I am irrelevant. Like he was doing this beautiful jujitsu reversal of like the move, like, yeah, sure. I guess I am. And then also that desire that we all have, you know, that in hip hop and especially in comedy, like we got a tongue, like a razor blade. I want to cut you immediately. And for him to not do that, I thought that was something really profound. And I was able to apply it to myself. I try to remind myself whenever someone on Twitter tries to get me in a tizzy and put me in the spin cycle. I try to remember what he was saying, just like, hey, be gracious, laugh about it, smile at it. And in a weird way, people will love you more for it. Yeah. Like he wasn't giving me a joke note. He was giving me more of like, a, hey, man, here's how you survive in this game with sanity, you know?
Right. I would love to see somebody just explore Jon Stewart's effect on other comedians. Totally. Everything that I hear from everybody that knows that man is like, he's the best teacher. He's the most supportive. He's the most yeah. intuitive. Um, he's like genuinely empathetic. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like every situation I've seen him in. This is going to sound kind of weird, but let me know if this makes sense. If you're starting a journey, you have to know how it ends. And he's been through that since 98. Right. Yes. Hey, you know, young Padawan, I'm like eight or nine chapters ahead of you. I'm telling you how this ends. So perhaps I would advise you navigate this journey this way because I'm sure you felt this with the music industry. Comedy also can be a very dark place. Absolutely. I've never been able to sometimes put my finger on it, but I, I've just called it dark energy. Yes. You know, and I, I don't know what it is, but I do go away from it. And then I've had friends that are just like, just stay, just hang out a little bit longer. But I don't know what it is. There's something in my like heart or stomach. It's not feeling right. And I feel almost like a, a little kid who can't explain to you. My son, he's three. Sometimes he can't explain why he's scared, but I'll see him move somewhere <laughs> else because something is wrong in that room. You know, mm -hmm. I felt that too before this kind of intuitive feeling. I don't like the energy here, you know? Yeah. And I, I felt like when Marin was coming at you, not to just harp on him. Cause I mean, he, he's, he's the real thing. He like earned He earned his right to have an opinion. Sure. And always with our elders, it's just like, man, I'm in the opinion of my elders. So like, you know, yeah, but it really felt like his thing was like, Give me something dark, man, about you. Like, where is the deep dysfunctional hatred of your family? Or like, man, until you give me that, I don't trust you. And I don't like the fact that people are laughing and I don't respect it. And I don't like it looked like he was like he was like looking for something in you that would um that would somehow affirm his very bleak and abysmal view of life. You know, you know it's interesting. Like, you know, we talk about there's there's just diff different philosophical paths. Like, there's different mudhubs or whatever. He came up during a certain era, and he believes um, comedians and comedy um, should, it, the, the true representation of the art form should look a particular way. But also, um, and I and I actually agree with him. There's parts of it where he goes, the conclusions, I know they're not really that sanitized. It's a little bit messier than that. I'll tell you this. Yeah. Sometimes when those conversations can actually be a blessing because um, it is something that I am working on. Having a little bit more smudge on the painting. Just let there yeah. be a little bit of smudge. Hey, maybe, maybe if you garbled a line and show one, Keep it in the edit to make it feel real. Right. And I've heard sometimes musicians do that. They're like, I didn't mix it and master it a certain way. I actually wanted it to feel a little bit more dirty, um, so to speak. And so I think Mark, and maybe this is just the way I frame things. I see it as, as, as a little, it was a good discussion because I was like, you know what? There's comics that I look at where I was like, bro, I, I love their ability to just lean into the moment and lose mm -hmm. everything they've been they've written and just kind of ride that wave and it just 
It's just raw expression in that moment. Mo is a master of that. Mo is so good at, hey, someone says something in the audience and like he taps into just that messiness in the room. And I've seen him have yeah. those magical nights. Yeah. So funny enough, I think Mark is kind of right. Everything doesn't have that like clean conclusion, so to speak. That can be really satisfying. Right. But he definitely inspired me to, hey, like look at the smudges a little bit and maybe explore that, you know? I did most of my music with Ant, like my main producer, and like we spent a lot of time trying to trying to really be bigger than this is a very similar kind of idea. But like, like we're not just rappers. We're not just making beats and rapping. We want to be musicians. We want to be songwriters. Like I want to write songs the way that Donny Hathaway wrote songs, or the way that you know a great songwriter writes. So I I learned so much about how to begin something, how to end something, how to do callbacks, how to like construct yeah. songs. And I was with Evidence from Dilated Peoples, and uh, he was like, "Man." come and we're going to do a project together. You, we're not doing any of that though. And so we did a project where I was in his garage in Venice yeah. in LA. And I sat there and we're in this little, like his studio is this tiny room. And he is a, a like notorious weed smoker. So just we, 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 t- and I, I, and I've, I've never, sm- I've sm- I, never, you know what I'm saying? So I'm like, man, I'm, I'm catching a contact, you know, I'm sitting there watching him make the beat on these like samplers from right. 1995. And I'm thinking of a few bars and he's like, when I'm done with this beat, you're recording this. And I'm like, but I don't have anything for it. And he's like, you got to do something. So I I started a process where I was like writing on the mic. I would think of a few bars, record it, think of a few bars, record it. And then he would walk up, he'd be sitting on the couch and I'd be controlling his computer and he would get up and just save the song. And I'm like, no, I'm not done. I need to, I want to like end it. He's like, no, like you're going to ruin it. Like you caught a moment stick with that moment. And so we made a whole project like that. And it was the least selling thing I've ever been involved in. But man, I, it felt yeah. so liberating to to be forced to do that. And then he took one of the songs and sent it to Farrell Monch. And Farrell Monch had like months to 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 do his verse. And so I got <laughs> destroyed like by <laughs> on the project. Because Pharaoh got. To I do wanted it to again. ask you because there's moments where I've seen you just rap your ass off, where it's just like, "Yo, you are like it's like rapidy rap, rap, rap." It's crazy. Then you talk about there's other types of hip hop, which I call it vibe. I, I just call it there's some some hip hop that I'm just I'll listen to or I'll see it in concert, and I go, "Oh, I I just think this is pure emotion or pathos." Yes. Yeah. It's not about couplets or structure and all that sort of stuff. How much do you remind yourself? How do you get that quotient right? Well, first of all, like I love that type of music. Um, like I don't listen to it a lot, but every time I hear it or I'm around it, I love it. And like they call it, like guys my age call it mumble rap because they're like, what are the words? And yeah, they've lost something from the words. But man, the like their ability to really just get to the energy and to the vibe and to the there's something yeah. in the body. And there's something really dope to me about it that some somebody like not black or not in that moment or not in that thing, you can't appropriate that. 
you can't appropriate that vibe. You can't appropriate like just that raw, creative, youthful, a lot of times energy. Like there's no way that somebody can come along and, and yeah. mimic that. You know what I'm saying? It's not happening. I don't I, like I you give white people 20 years, I don't think that's happening. <laughs> I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. When you look back on your first couple of albums and the way people received you and who you are now, what do you think of that artist then and the artist you are now? What are the things you wish you could tell that person then? And how have you made sense of that now? I'm so happy with how everything went. There were a lot of attachments that I have that I've been relieved of. Like those attachments have been broken and they definitely felt like loss when they were happening. And I'm grateful for the spiritual path where it's like, man, loss is actually a great gift, no matter how much it hurts. You know, so I, when I came in, I thought that I would be with that group of guys in that business situation forever. I thought I owned part of that record label. I thought, I and nobody ever lied to me about anything. I just had these assumptions when I came in. And then the relationship with the, you know, this community and city and th- all this kind of stuff. Like, I think I'm, what I'm learning about myself is that I'm, I'm needy in certain ways because of being an outsider. That, that I really believed that 100% of what I was experiencing as love and lifetime connection, like I was, I was, I wanted it to be that so much that I was making it that in my own head. Um, and so then I, I got to a place where I felt betrayed by certain things. And I just realized that there it's a, it's a breaking of that attachment. Um, and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade any of it. But one of the things that I, that I would say to, and I do say to people is like, man, a, it feels like a lot of people love you when you're doing really great and when you're easy to celebrate. But so much of people's opinions of us are projections of what they need. And so like when people need a hero, they need a champion because it makes them feel a certain way about themselves to be like, well, I'm I'm not all the way set up like I want to be, but I love this band or this team or this political leader or this religious teacher, and they're dope on my behalf. That can't be permanent because that's not tr- that's not that's not permanent. And I definitely believed that because of how sincere I thought I was being, that I believed all the adulation was would always be like that because I'm so real mm-hmm. that like, you know, and I realized that some of some of what I was doing was projecting some of what I was doing. It wasn't performative because I believed it in the moment. I was acting and saying and doing what I thought was real in the moment. I just didn't realize how much of it was me wanting validation and, um, you know, but also I wouldn't trade it. <laughs> I wouldn't trade the the belief in that and i wouldn't trade the the sense of loss wow. when it went away i wouldn't trade any of it. and and I, and that's the thing that i kept trying to interrupt you to say is that the teachers like really great teachers really great therapists really great shakes and spiritual leaders guides like i think one of the things they know about us is that i can tell you what to do but unless you get to the point, like a really great one will ha- will make it so we get there 
on our own so that we know how yeah. real it is. And one of the things they tell us is that when Allah wants good for a person, he'll let, he'll, he'll let them be misguided and mess up a lot and feel distant from him and feel horrible and full of regret and all this stuff so that they can be like, oh, no, I want to be close to God. I want to get right. I want to feel, I want to I rectify this and then rectify it and be close again. And then, because then it's like, this isn't just something my parents told me to do. This isn't something I was guilted into doing. My heart knows what it felt like to go through these experiences. That's beautiful. I imagine people are very jealous of you. Whenever somebody comes and does something really dope and they do it, or something new, and they do it so thoroughly, like you do your style of comedy like it already existed. Like it doesn't look like somebody trying to figure it out. It like by the time it reaches, you know, both uh the the first one and the both both your specials, by the time they show up, it's so it's so like you say it clean that it it doesn't feel like something brand new. And I I wonder like when people see that, do they feel like this isn't fair? I think it could be a variety of things. I I can't. I can't look into their heart of what's actually going on with them, but I think it could be a variety of things. Some people may say this is it's disingenuous. He's not, he doesn't love his wife that much, or he's not really keeping it a thousand percent real. That's not, that's not really that. Sometimes it can come from a place of they take it as uh an attack on the existing establishment. That's not what traditional stand-up comedy is. Mm-hmm. And some people, it can, it can just be genuine personal preference. They're like, look, man, when I come to comedy, really what I'm looking for is a type of comedy. I want to go into a basement and I kind of want to hear irreverent ratchet stuff, you know? And that's a type of comedy. That's what it's, it's just, it's no different than music. So I think people have to be into that. Like, and, and, as I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate all forms of it, even with myself, to be like, man, like, I wish I could use all the words they're using. <laughs> you know what I mean? The P's, the V's, the F's, the S's. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I could really spice up the act. But I realized, and I've talked to you about this, I think, before privately, we all are an instrument. And some <laughs> of those words won't, it just won't sound right coming out of my mouth because of my <laughs> instrument. You know what I mean? Can you imagine if like Seinfeld was like really, it was like Andrew Dice Clay? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's a funny SNL sketch, you know, Dirty Seinfeld. <laughs> so my buddy's done that as a character on stage where, you know, he's just like, he's being super crass as Seinfeld. You know, what's the deal with, you know, this? <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, that. Some, some, some places just really stink. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, exactly. What's the deal with eating ass? All the kids are eating ass, like you know, Kramer. You know, it's that kind of vibe, and it's it's cool for like a what if twenty second like comedy run. But Jerry's instrument, he really is like a throwback to the nightclub like comedians of the mid twentieth century purists that were just pure kind of observational comics in the 50s, 60s, 70s and stuff. And he came of age and, and during, that, during that time, he could do that. But we have to understand what our instrument is. And then my goal has been, hey, when you see someone 
do something that you can't do, marvel at it, enjoy it, appreciate it, and see if there's a way you can improve your game. But if it's not authentic or true to you, you don't have to, you don't have to entertain it. You know, have you ever felt that way before where you're like, I wish my, my Batman utility belt had 15 of these things. You know, I wish I had the, the such and such of Lil Yachty, but the bars of Nas, but the writing of so-and-so and the, you know what I mean? But the storytelling of Slick Rick and the blah, blah, blah of this. Did you ever feel that way? I felt that way as a comic where I'm like, oh man, if I was able to do this like Jamie Foxx or I could do impressions like Jay Farrell, oh man, what I could, what that could do to my act, you know? Yeah, for me, it's funny because like I, I went, I basically did the opposite of Jerry Seinfeld. So when I came out, I was cursing a lot. Oh. And it was actually Evidence, the same guy. The first day that I met Evidence, he was cracking up laughing. And I was like, why are you like laughing at me? And he's like, because, man, I was just talking about you. He said, for a conscious rapper, you curse more than a gangster rapper. And it just doesn't sound right. And I was like, this is how I talk, though. And he was like, yeah, even if you talk like that, it probably doesn't. Like, that's not your heart. And he said, you're just, uh, you're overcompensating for the fact that you don't smoke weed and you don't chase women and you don't do this and you're not a street guy. So he's like, you're look, you're trying to find out what's my edge as a hip hop, as an artist. So he's like, that's your edge. So you just yeah. curse like crazy. And he's like, you're probably going to stop someday. And I'm just like, dang, man. He's the opposite. He's not like, he's a different kind of, he's not like an elder teacher. He's like a slightly bigger brother who's cool. And I'm not like every time I'm around evidence, I'm like, oh, this is what cool people are like. You know, by the way, you've had your, there's been moments where I've seen, there's been years where sometimes I've seen you and you're just in your hoodie mode. And then there's modes where I've seen you and you're like in your, I call it nation of Islam chic mode. (laughs) Like you got like the (laughs) like. Bro, you are suited and booted. What What's the inspiration behind that? Is it just moments, like periods of time in your life? Yeah, so I, I um, most of the time when I dress, I realized this when I moved here, most of the time what I wear is based on not wanting to look and feel fat. Okay. okay. It's mostly that. It's mostly like, okay, the thicker the coat, the less you see boobs and belly and like you know what i'm saying but then also you know also you get hot it's weird man if you ever get a chance to get fat don't it sucks it's so whack right um but yeah so so and then i did make a switch like in 2017 Mm. i was just like okay this is the person i'm becoming i thought about not making music anymore like i was gonna fully just go and study islam you know, I was an imam before I was a professional uh, MC, so I was like, I could go back to that world, and I'd be very happy doing that. But I realized I just wasn't happy with my setup in music, and I didn't feel like I was completely being myself all the way. Yeah, that was a period where I was just really trying to like, this is how I want to dress, this is where I want to be at in life. So I stopped cursing at a certain point. I just feel much better about it, and I'm to a point where I don't even. Like I do feel better. I, I like I feel like more myself if I don't talk like that.
The Travelers Podcast is sponsored this week by BetterHelp online therapy platform. And when you use our link to sign up with them, which is betterhelp.com slash travelers, you're going to get a discount on your first month of therapy. We're going to get a commission to help the work that we do here on the podcast. It really is a win-win for everybody. I'm a musician and I cannot stand to watch movies about music being made because it's just like, man, that's not how it works. And I want people to know how it works. My wife is a therapist and she can't stand to watch therapy in TV and movies because she's like, that's not how it happens. On TV and in movies, you see a person lay down on a couch, they cry to a stranger, and that person tells them all the secrets of their life and unlocks everything for them and tells them what to do and maybe gives them pills and things like that. There are a lot of approaches to therapy and there are a lot of ways that it's done. I don't think any of them are that. What therapy does look like in most cases is we start talking to people about the issues that are bringing us to therapy in the moment. So addictions or relationship issues or anxiety or depression or thoughts that we're wrestling with. And firstly, they ask us questions that we couldn't have asked ourselves. And those questions are very revealing. Then they listen and repeat our answers back to us in ways that offer us a lot to learn a lot about ourselves. Now, mind you, they haven't told us anything yet, but as time goes on, they start drawing connections and they just give us the opportunity to look at ourselves and our lives and the things that we're dealing with and the way that we've processed things, the way that we've stored information in ways that we haven't explored. Like, what's the idea that I have of myself based on this thing that happened? And maybe I didn't even realize that I translated it that way. And then what conclusions have I drawn about the world that may have served me in the moment, but may not be working as I go forward? So therapy takes a lot of different forms. There are a lot of different approaches, but most great therapists are going to unlock different ways for us to see ourselves that are going to allow us to come to our own conclusions and to set our own goals. And I personally believe that we deserve access to therapy. I had a hard time accessing therapy. I heard about BetterHelp on a podcast and I gave it a shot. I've had two different therapists now and I'm actively involved in weekly therapy sessions on BetterHelp. So go to betterhelp.com slash travelers, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash travelers. Like I said, you get that discount. You start talking to them about what type of therapist you'd like to see. And then you make your own schedule with that therapist. You can start communicating with them right away. And at any time, if you feel like maybe this isn't the person for me, you change therapist, no questions asked, no extra charge. I'm recommending it. I have this partnership with them. So go to betterhelp.com travelers and get down with this therapy journey. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to jump back in in one moment, but I just want to take a second and say that I'm very grateful that you're here because... The podcast and the music that we release, the limited vinyl drops and the merchandise and the learning series, the events, the concerts, all the stuff that we do is completely independent. There's no record label. There's no distributor. There's no big corporation behind it. But I'm very grateful that we're able to make a living doing exactly what we want to do. It comes from our heart and it's intended to go to your heart and nowhere else. And that's a really beautiful thing to be able to say especially in this particular time. And I think you know that already, and I think you know this already, but 
My guess is that you also follow and listen to and support other artists and creatives and content people and speakers and thought leaders that are independent. And when that's the case, it's cool to follow us on social media, but it's actually not that cool to just follow us on social media. It's getting more and more corny. Um, increasingly, the things are changing in ways that I don't have time to get into right now. But it means that even if you follow us and even if you tell the robots and the AI and the algorithm and whatever, even if you tell them you want to see the stuff we put out, a lot of the things that we post are just not going to reach your eyes and you're not even going to know about what we're doing. The best way to connect with us is to go to brotherali.com. You'll immediately be prompted to sign our mailing list. And I don't like to sign mailing lists. I don't like giving people my email. But in this case, when you do it, I write those emails personally, and I only send them out when I've got things that I really want to share with you that I think you're interested in. I don't do it a lot. I will not blow up your email. So sign that mailing list. And then go to the shopping section. We got all of our merch there, podcast merch. There's Uncle Sam goddamn anniversary stuff. There's Brother Minister stuff. When we do our limited cassettes and vinyl and all that kind of, all of that is there. You'll be able to see all of that. And if you go to the section called Join, we've got a caravan, which is our group of subscribers and supporters. And there's different ways to interact there. You get exclusive stuff. The top tier of those subscribers, we interact with them a lot. Uh, there's a Slack channel that's open at all times, and we communicate and build community. That middle uh, tier, that's $25 a month you get exclusive stuff. You get parts of these episodes that aren't released to everybody. Uh, you get music and things that I want to share uh, on a regular basis. And then even that that lower level, that $5 level, you everybody that subscribes, you get these episodes early and without commercials and ads. And you know that you're supporting the work that we're doing here. So if you're digging any of the stuff that we do, head to brotherali.com, connect with us directly, and know that we... Love you beyond words. We appreciate you beyond words. I remember you left me a voice memo, uh, you know, when you were just like, I was thinking about leaving, but you left me a voice memo that I still listen to. I was on the road. I was on tour last year and it's just really lonely. It was really hard being on the road, but you said this thing and I'll never forget it. So when I grabbed that mic, and I'm on stage for a moment. I'm bigger than all of this other BS in my life. And I think about that all the time. Sometimes when I get disillusioned with comedy, there's these moments when you're on stage and you've hit this chord with the audience and you're riding that wave where it's new thought and their laughter is acceptance of the new thought. And it's just crescendoing at this moment. I think about that, that thing you told me all the time. I'm bigger than all the bullshit that's happened to me in my life in this moment. Yeah. Yeah, man. I hope you never lose that, which you told me that's, that's really powerful. And I chase that. I chase that feeling. Yeah. And the live shows. And then also, yeah, the live shows are a really great opportunity to feel that again. Because those people are, are genuine. Yeah, when when you feel like, you know, like I'm bigger, but really it's bigger. It, you know what I mean? Like it's bigger than us. It's just like, man, this is one of the many, like Allah reveals himself in everything if, if people are open to it. Like Allah reveals himself literally 
in the horrific things that happen, in things that seem mundane, in literally everything. Like there are people that do things that they're not supposed to do, but and Allah reveals himself in those moments. So that's one of the things that I always come back to that this is this is something that I was given as a way to connect. When I do see other people, other artists, I wish I had a better work ethic and was more consistent. And I wish that I was better at assessing situations and people. Like I'm not good at assessing situations. I don't know if it's because of my vision, like I just can't see. Uh, when I'm talking one-on-one -on -one with a person, that's okay. But the way that my man Slug from Atmosphere can read rooms and read situations and read trends and what's happening and all this kind of stuff, that's a skill that he has that I feel would be really valuable. And then also people like him and Black Thought and Dave Chappelle. And there's people that have this work ethic and they've had it from day one where like they got it immediately. If I'm going to really be the best me, I've got to work consistently at this thing. And I, I have these long gaps in between making new albums and things like that, that I just feel like, man, I, I could be so much further if I didn't have that, like if I didn't have those gaps. During those lulls, do you feel like there's something inside of you that you've got to say? Or is it just you just haven't found the muse, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing though is that whenever I go to make an album, yeah. I find it by doing it. Yeah. You know, so a lot of times when I get to make albums, it's because it's time to do it, or like I've done all the touring I can do off the last album, and now I'm broke, and I need to, <laughs> I need to make an album so I can go back on tour again. Yeah. You know what I mean? But there's not. It's, it's, the second I start doing it, I do. I find inspiration by doing it. So I, I think it's better to just keep it strong. You talk about you're like maybe this has been a weakness, but what what do you think your superpower is? We all have that superpower. What do you think that is where you go, man, other people don't have this thing that I have. Maybe God gave me this like as a gift. It only works with people that I really connect with and I have no control over who I do and don't connect with. But I can I can connect my heart to anyone's heart if if that if it's there. Gotcha. You know, so listeners or people or and it's interesting because there are people that I'll see like I like a lot of people that do stuff. I like Jerry Seinfeld. I don't, I didn't used to. I do now. I don't have this feeling where like, I need to know this guy. I feel my heart is connected to this guy. You know what I mean? There are other people that though, that I'm like, this is a, this is a person that I love. I'm seeing through all of these cameras and everything else. And I love this person. And almost every time it, I end up connecting with them and it's real. And it's interesting with you, because if I saw your work, I would feel that way. Wow. But it's just a blessing that I got to know you before I saw your work. Like, I knew you before I knew your work. Wow. Yeah. We just knew kind of knew each other backstage at Mo's show. And then, yeah, through the like WhatsApp thread. It's crazy. And we'd be talk we would be talking back and forth. You gave me this piece of advice too, bro. I don't know if you've seen, sometimes I'll do interviews and I'll, I'll, I'll be like, brother Ali told me this. Have you seen that? I'll just be like, all right, I gotta, I gotta make sure that there's like the Wikipedia sourcing on this. Yes. But, um, you kind of told me, you and Uzzer told me there's times where like, I'm very sensitive. So I'll get, you'll see it in my face. I won't be smiling. 
And both you and Uzzer have told me, bro, keep smiling. Like that, there is magic in that. And maybe God gave you that gift. Don't, don't let them not see you smile. And someone who has that, who's been able to do incredible magic tricks with it is Rami. Oh, man. Oh, God. That guy is like exhaustingly likable, man. <laughs> yeah. The uppercuts and the jabs. You don't even realize that he's landing. Because he's just kind of, he's sheepishly grinning, you know? It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Rami's a special guy, man. He is. He really is. He really is. There's moments where I would watch his show and I told him this. I go, I cannot believe you're doing this. I don't think people realize the level of difficulty of the triple axle you're pulling off right now in the comedy Winter Olympics. You're pulling off a, a trick here, a move here that is so difficult to thread this needle. It's incredible. Man, I know that there's there's certain like art that's meant to be like really challenging and difficult and um, awkward and just painful to watch. Like, and I love him so much and I care so much about what he's talking about. And so many people that I love are part of watching that show. I can't watch it. <laughs> like there are people that say like, I can't watch The Office because it's too cringy. And it's like, that's supposed to be like that. But with him, it's like, I, I love the person so much that I cannot watch a, 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 a challenging, like a, I cannot watch that uh-huh. because it's too real to me. Oh, I get what you're saying. So it's, it's really tough. Yeah, man. One of the things that I, I think really makes you very unique is that you know, when when people have this idea that comedy is supposed to be dark and there's supposed to be edge and like you're supposed to, like the type of revealing that people are doing about themselves um, is like, well, this is how messed up I am. Or this is how evil I really am underneath it all. You know what I mean? And I think like those are the things that certain people might be looking for is like, where's the edge, man? Where's the evil, you know? But I, I think that it's more giving and I think it's more artistic and I think it's more vulnerable. And when I say vulnerable, I mean like we're really being opened up to harm, um, to share like your love and your care and your concern and also your own questioning and wrestling with your own intentions. Like there's something about showing your struggle to make good on your goodness Mm -hmm. that I think is, is, I think it's actually more risky to do. Like even as an artist, like not even on some like, well, people might attack me or like what, but I'm like, dude, if if you show them the most pure loving part of yourself and they don't laugh or they don't like it, or if it doesn't, you know, man, what what is, what's that like? And that fear, that fear has to be, profound and I relate to it to a certain degree, but I got a beat going and my words are rhyming and I'm I got the I'm I'm doing the voice and all the stuff. But like man, when when you're saying some of the things you're saying, right. I'm just like, man, I'm so happy this is working. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I appreciate that. You know what's crazy, man? Sometimes I think about some of the topics I was able to cover even through my show. Mm. And I realized 
there's a part of it that's not even in my control. I think there is something about timing and destiny. And there are people that came before me that were inching it open. They were, they were with a crowbar. They were trying to crack open that door. So some of the subjects and the things that I was talking about, U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia, making jokes, you know, about insulin pricing or student loan debt, stuff that had been that people had been pounding the pavement on for decades. It had been it had been pried open to a point where that wasn't my work. It was just I happened to be there at the right time that I could kind of inch it open with them the very last moment. So. Mm-hmm. That's a part of it too. You know, I'm sure you felt that before too, where you felt ahead of your time or you felt like, man, I landed at the right moment. I don't know if I could have done this type of work 10 years prior to this, you know? Mm. Like, do you ever think about that album you put out in 07 or 09 to be like, could I put this out in 96 or 99? Where the industry was at that time, you don't know, right? You know? And you're like, maybe that happened at that moment during that time in Minneapolis, where hip hop was, all these things line up. And it's just like, there was just enough oxygen. The soil was fertile enough for my tree to grow. I feel that. I really do feel that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, it's really real. It's, a, it's really real. And it's really, you know, and in that sense, like the, there are certain, like the, there are certain people that might not because that wasn't their moment. It's like they're not built to understand that or they're not meant to, it's not their place to grasp that. But yeah, I do feel that way. Like you said, like rap, rip, rap, rapidly do, no problem. I love doing that. Uh-huh. And especially if I'm in a room with people, um, like I love reminding others that I'm able to do that. Yeah. It's not just, you know, personal st- autobiographicals, you know, whatever, whatever people think I do. Whenever people are like, it's a Brother Ali kind of day. I'm always, I never know what they mean by that. People tweet that all the time. I'm having a Brother Ali kind of day. And it's like, man, that could mean so many things. But whatever you think it is, if if I'm in a room with MCs, I'm really happy about the fact that like, all right, let's see what's what here. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, you're definitely right. Like like if I had come out, there was a time before I met Rhyme Sayers, before I met, where I was going to move to New York. Wow. And try to try to pursue, try to go to, uh, you know, be in that raucous world or, um, you know, to try to get in that, in that world. And I don't think that I would have been able to explore all the stuff that I did that actually made me who I am as an artist. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely something to that. How do you choose your targets in terms of your critiques? Um, you know, it's a really interesting question. I kind of put it in three buckets. Sometimes you, I say something on stage or I'm, I'm trying to get it out. It accomplishes that feeling of, oh my God, thank you for saying that. Like there's so many times that people in their day-to-day lives, they feel something and they're just waiting for somebody to say it on the biggest stage possible. Yo, thank, finally. You know, that kind of all caps, finally, someone's saying it. So there's stuff like that. Then there's another part of it um, that is, that's, I think, a little bit more difficult, but it is very interesting when people go, man, I never, I never saw the world that way. 
Mm-hmm. I was always looking at it this way. I didn't know if you turned it. Oh, it's really like this. You know, I didn't realize that some of my best takes, it's just like a bar. You're like, man, the way you end a, a couplet, it's like, I've never seen it that way, but you've said it so profoundly that it's going to stay with me forever. Um, and then the third bucket is sometimes it just scares me. And there's part of me with comedy. I'm trying to, in a weird way, I don't know if this sounds right, but it's almost like I'm trying to prove it to myself. This thing doesn't scare me. I'll always feel that like that little pit in my stomach. Like right now I'm writing my new show. It's my third um, special called Off With His Head. It kind of completes the trio. Homecoming King, King's Jester, Off With His Head. And dope. Dope, dope. Oh, that's hard, man. That's a great title, man. But there's parts of it that are, you know, like there's certain takes that I have that are a little bit um, heterodoxical. You wouldn't expect me to believe those things, right? And I'm working it out on stage. And right now I'm doing it at the cellar. I'll do this, I'll do this exercise that funny enough, Louis C.K., I would hear him talk about where he would go, if you have your closer, don't close with it. Open with your closer. That puts your back against the wall. Now you got to fill up the next 15 minutes with your weaker material. And so I've been doing that now. And it's been really hard. Like I can feel myself flailing in the pool. And the audience doesn't know it, but I'm calming my, I'm trying to calm my heart down. So it's funny as we're having this conversation, it's Feb- it's February. I don't know when this is going to come out, but I've been getting up, you know, every other night and doing three, four, five sets. And I don't know if the audience knows it, but it's like, man, I'm flailing up there right now. I'm really trying to figure it out and I'm getting a little bit more comfortable. And then once that bit gets really good, then I open with it. So I can't rely on it. I can't use it to bail me out, you know? And eventually that's forcing the other bits to get stronger. So hopefully I can build, you know, an hour of material or 90 minutes of material that I feel really great about. And it all feels strong. Yeah. That fear is such a, is such a beautiful invitation because there's something about like, and you know, and to me, like you talk about like the, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said like they're fighting oppressors on the battlefield. Like these are people that starved them and killed them and stole from them and ran them out of their houses and, to, you know, all this stuff. And they're patient, 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 patient. And then finally it's time to like, okay, we have to actually meet them on the battlefield. So they do. And then they're leaving the battlefield and they're going back to Medina, like their their life. He's like, we're leaving the little jihad and we're going to the big jihad, which is like the one internally with self. Oh wow! And there's that thing where like, because you you've taken aim at stuff that I've I I feel you like man when you said what you said about so many things, right? Saudi Arabia. It's like man, I'm so happy that people get a sense. For there was a point in that in that piece where you just said, hey, just so you know. Most Muslims in the world do not feel great about Saudi Arabia just because they control the holy sites. Most of us f- have a really difficult relationship with right. that government. And I just realized there's so many things that people don't know. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, they had no idea about that. None. That's crazy. It's, it's very similar um, to like a lot of our Jewish homies in Israel where they're like, yes, I want a place to be Jewish, but I hate the fact that they're, they're doing what they're doing to the Palestinians. Right, right, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
that's a voice that doesn't get heard enough. Although I do think the the Jews that are critical of Palestine are some of the most some of the most beautiful, eloquent, outspoken, well-spoken, <laughs> incredible people. And they and they take a hit for it, man. Mm. Like I was just looking at um this man, what's his name? Kenneth Roth. Okay. He was the head of Human Rights Watch for like 13 years. Mm. And he criticized Saudi Arabia, criticized all of these governments. And he wrote a big paper about Israel and he was like human rights violation after human rights violation. He also criticized certain things that Hamas did, you know, but he's like, I I applied the same standards. I found that they're violating human rights and this is an apartheid state. And then he was supposed to go do something at Harvard. He was supposed to do some like scholarly writing at Harvard and they denied him. But, um, you know, Islam has had such an interesting relationship with hip hop. Whereas Islam's relationship to Hollywood and show business, it seems so outside and foreign. What do you, what, what, what was it like for you or what has it been like for you being in the industry and when you tell people, yo, I'm Muslim, do they immediately get it? Does like hip hop immediately understand and, and know what you're saying? Yes. Mm. Um, it, so it's, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, yes, and when I started out, all of my heroes were not, wouldn't be considered like Orthodox Muslim, but they were like, you know, had some relationship to like the 5% nation of gods and earths. But those people really embraced me, gave me opportunities. Right. Um, like all of the 5%, like most pro-Black artists took me on tour. Like Brand Nubian, Lord Jamar, who's wow. famous for saying white people are guests in the house of hip hop, they need to, you know. He brought me he brought me and BK on tour immediately after we toured with Atmosphere. They were the second people. Rakim took me out for a year. MF Doom, uh, you know, Wu Tang, uh, Big Daddy Kane, Public Enemy, all those people. And I know that me being Muslim had something to do with it. Like, cause they just feel favorably about. But then on the other hand, there are a lot of people that it's difficult for me to be close with them, especially when they're create when they're being creative, because just the fact that I'm not I'm not partying, I'm not smoking, I'm not drinking, it makes them feel weird. Even though I'm not judging them, right? Like I don't like it. You know what I'm saying? I don't like it, but like I'm not I'm not judging them, but they feel weird, and so they they, as much as they hug me and like they're so respectful and so beautiful to me, they don't actually want me to be there. Right, right, right. I hear you. Yeah. Ho- Hollywood is, is very anti-Islam. It's very anti-Muslim. Um, you know, and we got friends that have, have done amazing work on this stuff. They just don't know. There's also an element yeah. of like, wait, what? You're celebrating Eid? What is that? You may not even know a single Muslim in your life. Wow, that's interesting. You know what I mean? Well, man, I appreciate you so much. You've been so generous, brother. I really I appreciate your time, but also just how real you always are and um it's i'm i for one am very grateful for all that you're doing and i just feel overwhelmed and like swelled with pride for you because i know i know how sincere it is i know how hard you work i know how much you care about it but man i just i really really appreciate you very much brother I'm, I'm
I'm back recording uh, in this hotel room full of sleeping ladies, my wife and my daughter, so I'm talking quiet again. Much love to my dear brother Hassan Minhaj for being so generous and gracious with his time and with himself and with his wisdom and his insights and just for being here and also for being him. It just really means a lot, you know, for artists that are out here trying to tell the truth and trying to hold on to as much virtue as we can and trying to be ourselves. To see somebody do that and make it, it just, it really feels like a victory for us all. And, you know, he pays a big price for that. And it's a heavy burden and it's a difficult thing to navigate. So in a lot of ways, he's doing that. Uh, that's a service that he's doing for us. And we're very grateful to our brother Hassan and we pray that Allah give him a long life full of guidance and goodness and protect him from anyone that would want to hurt, harm him. And uh, also we pray the same for his family. And we pray the same for you. Uh, we're brought to you as always by the Zakat Foundation and then also betterhelp.com, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash travelers. Uh, we'll connect you with that network of therapists. Also, don't forget about the people in Syria and in Turkey. Uh, Zakat Foundation, Zakat, Z-A-K-A-T dot org is a really trustworthy place to give. And uh, they're really set up well to be able to help in real life. Uh, special thanks to Emna Mirza Mansour Panawala, Darian Washington, Last Word, um, Mark from Medina Hip Hop, Ant, and shout out to all of my dear friends that listen and give me feedback on the show. Uh, special, sending a special shout out to my man Ahmed Fahmi and to Jamal Jenkins, and to Aida Rashid, and to Khalis Rashad, and uh, all of my dear friends that check out the podcast and give me feedback. It, it really means a lot that you, I don't expect my friends to listen, so when you do, I really appreciate it. Um, Traveler's Podcast is produced, edited, made happen by the great, the one and only, my man, BK1, Brendan Kelly. And it is a production of Travelers Media. Much love to you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.